Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest edition of the Haskin Cows podcast, the first one of 2018. And we have a very special guest for you today. I'm very excited to have interviewed Angela Chan, who is a keyboard and piano player here in Las Vegas. She's currently working as the assistant band director at La Rev at the Wynn Hotel. Absolutely beautiful show. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's one to see when you're here. Also, uh, she has worked on many other shows. She's done a lot of stuff at the Smith Center. She's worked on some uh, plays with the school. She's worked on some of the independent plays that happen here in the art district. I've had the pleasure of working with her on a couple of shows. She is absolutely phenomenal. And we talk about some work that she's done uh, both as a musical director, as an assistant musical director, and then just as a, a touring keyboardist in some of the shows. She's worked on Cat. She's worked on just about everything. Uh, really amazing and just a, a truly, truly wonderful person. Uh, uh, Greg German, who I had on uh, not too long ago, actually introduced me to her and her husband, Alex, who will be coming on the show sometime uh, in a month or so. And uh, just truly wonderful, honest, real people, the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with. And I'm very, very fortunate to know them. And uh, we, we get together from time to time. We're all so busy that it's really hard to find time to not just even find a day where we have a hole in our schedule, but where that lines up, where we can actually get together. So I don't get to see them as often as I would like, but I do get to see them from time to time. Also, uh, when I was at the NAMM show last January, Alex and our friend Rachel performed on Marimba, and I've got some photos and videos of that on my Facebook page. Uh, and then uh, some of the work that uh, Angela's done, she does uh, she does some work as the Chanosaurus Rex, where she dresses up in the T-Rex costume and shoots some really hilarious videos that I've, I've gotten to be a part of a couple of those. And uh, also, she did the, uh, the Elf uh, Eggnog video, which I recently posted on Facebook that she did for uh, this past Christmas. And we've got the links to that in the show notes. And we didn't get to talk about the Chanosaurus Rex thing because, you know, there was just only so much time. Uh, really could have talked to her for another hour. Uh, also, the uh, link to the Sad Penis Christmas song is in the links as well, or in the show notes as well, and uh, we didn't get to talk about that. But we did get to talk a little bit about the Elf video and uh, some of her other work. So it was a, a great time talking to her. So grateful that she made some time to come on the show because she really is very, very busy. And I hope you guys uh, had a great Christmas. I hope that you're all uh, enjoying the New Year's and that you didn't get too crazy, that you're all healthy and recovering and all of that. Uh, I don't have a lot of rules in life, but one of my rules is that I do not leave the house on New Year's Eve. Uh, especially living in Vegas, we have a, a higher number of drunk drivers, I think, than, than some other places. And going out on New Year's Eve really kind of is just tempting that. And not to mention that, you know, as often as I walk uh, the Strip, this particular night, because they close it down, and even though the street, you can walk, you know, anywhere in the street, um, it's just a ton of people. I think they were estimating 350,000 people this year. And, you know, I like to move. Like, when I'm out there, I like to walk and I like to move. And I usually go a little bit later when there's less people so that I'm less encumbered by the traffic. And, uh, you know, this is just going to be a dead standstill. So it's it's the one night of year that I don't go out. And I actually had this rule long before I moved to Vegas. I just really don't like to go out on New Year's Eve. Uh, but for those of you that did, I hope that uh, you had a safe and wonderful time. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear your New Year's resolution. 
I, uh, you know, I really don't do resolutions because I think that if you want to make a change, you should just make the change. I don't think that you should wait for a specific day because when you do, you're not in the zone that you were when you wanted to make the change. And I think that has a high impact on the success rate. And I think that's why most New Year's resolutions fail before the end of January. Uh, I, I just, you know, if you want your life to be different, just make it different. It's, it's really that simple to me. But for other people, um, some people are really good at setting themselves up as, as goals. Like, I want to quit smoking on January 1st. And they're able to just put that down and really be done with it. And to me, that's pretty amazing. When I quit smoking, it was because I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I remember I took a friend out for her birthday to the Cheesecake Factory and we went back to her place, hung out for a little while. I came home, walked out onto my patio, lit a cigarette, took like two drags and said, I'm just done with this. And I was. That was the end of it. I still occasionally get cravings. And I want to say this is probably four or five years ago. My, my probably closer to five. I think it was September of 2013. Yeah, it had to have been because I left uh, Arizona in 2014 to move to LA. So yeah, it was September 2013. So we're talking a little over five years now. And you know, I still get cravings. There's still those triggers like after a big meal or, you know, after doing a huge job or something like that, or, or sometimes even just to take a break from like working on an audio book or something, I would go smoke a cigarette. And uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have withstood the cravings. I have not had one since, not even a, a drag. I did have one clove cigarette. I, I want to say I had like four drags of a clove cigarette, and uh, I got a really bad headache from it. So that's pretty much the end of it. And no e-cigarettes, no nothing like that. Um, I, I did an e-cigarette for a little while, and it was really more work than it was worth, and, and I didn't enjoy that either. And now, you know, of course, the truth about those has come out, and uh, you know how bad they are for you. And uh, so, but but my point is more of if you want to change, just change. If you're one of those people who's really good at scheduling change and sticking to it, uh, more power to you because that's not something that's ever really worked for me. Um, so anyway, I hope you guys are, are enjoying the new year and I hope you enjoy the interview with Angela. She's hilarious. Just a lot of fun to be around. Highly intelligent, incredibly talented musician and uh, a, a really good writer too. I, I, I like the stuff that I've heard that she's created. So uh, without further ado, let's bring Angela on the show. And let's welcome Angela to the show. Angela, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Super excited. You uh, you have a really busy schedule. You do a lot of work. People people say that. I always think that's not true, but then I, somehow it's always true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, you you have your show that you perform uh, five nights a week, and you're doing what? You guys are doing two shows a night, right? That's correct. Two shows a night, seven and nine thirty. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a lot in and of itself. But then you seem to find a lot of other projects to work on in between. I mean, it really amazes me how hard you work. 
Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I like to I like to keep pretty busy, you know, keep my keep the old brain going. Right. <laughs> well, you're currently the assistant band leader at uh, Le Rev, which is at the Wynn Hotel. Beautiful show. Uh, I, I saw it a couple years ago and, and just fantastic. Very grandiose. Uh, was that a show you were temping on that show, though, before you started working permanently, right? Yes, so I was studying on that show for about two years before uh, the music director left, and I ended up taking over his keyboard book, and um, our bass player ended up taking over as the music director position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but those aren't typically jobs that have a high turnover, right? Um, you know, actually, those don't. Um, the the guy who was the the keyboard player in my spot before hadn't had been there for about 10 years. Uh, I know Tyler, our MD now, has been there for 10 years as well as um, our guitar player, actually. Um, And the singer, our male singer, has been there for a long time. I think, I don't know if he was one of the original ones, but he's been there quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, The newbies are actually myself. Um, I'm probably the oldest of the new ones. Um, And I started about... Uh, a little over a year and a half ago, um, my husband, who's the drummer, just went full, had been subbing for three years and then went full time in May. And then our keyboard two and um, Ableton programmer uh, joined us last October. So wow. that a little bit of young blood. But before that, those chairs, I think the key two chair hadn't turned over ever and uh, neither had the drum chair, actually. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, though, that that's kind of the dream, right, is to get in a show like that. And once you get there, even if it's it's, you know, monotonous after a while, you really don't want to leave because it's not that easy to find another show to just jump on and work in. Yeah. And especially like like the current climate right now, there's not a lot of shows going on. So I was I mean, we were all really super lucky to get this show. I mean, it's been running for 13 and a half years. It'll be 14 in May, I believe. And um and, you know, it's it's kind of like that office spacing, you know, wouldn't it be great if you're still having 10 years? You know, that kind of job security would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, it's, it's even worse in the corporate world. But uh, <laughs> and you were also when you were subbing for Larev, you were also subbing on Ka and a couple other shows, weren't you? Yeah, so I subbed on Ka for about five years. Um, before that, I was I was kind of subbing kind of in and out of um, some of the show touring shows that went through the Smith Center. So I've subbed on um, Waitress and American in Paris, um, The Sound of Music, I believe, um, are some of the recent ones, and Wicked. Um, yeah, and it's just it's 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 pretty. I keep pretty busy doing stuff there, and sometimes I'll fill in with like the Philharmonic or with the Nevada Ballet Theater Orchestra as well. Mm-hmm. How, how, what's the reality of walking in and subbing on a gig like that, where it's something that, you know, you, you, at least with, with Ka and Larev, you, you've gotten to work with these people quite a bit and you're familiar with the show. But when a show just comes into town, you really don't get a lot of rehearsal time. What's, what's the reality of just jumping in and working on a show like that? <laughs> The reality is, is you got to put in a lot of prep work if you want to go in and nail it the first time. I spend, um, I mean, because I spent so much time on the road, I know a lot of the people that are on the road that come through. So I can, I kind of have a little bit of an advantage being able to contact people ahead of time if I've got questions. And, and I always do. And I always, I always just mark the crap out of my books and I get to make sure I get a recording. I listen to it. I'm, you know, I just make sure if I've missed anything more than once or twice when I'm practicing it, I just mark it, highlight it. I'll write in 
you know, lyrics in case I space out sometimes, which I do. I mean, everybody does, but, you know, I know that I do it, so I plan for it. That's smart. That's that's <laughs> but, a good um, preparation there. But, yeah, but I mean, that I'll basically just, just work it and work it. I mean, a lot of times we don't have a ton of time to do it. So sometimes our books can come in as as uh, with as little time as maybe like a week and a half to prepare to maybe sometimes a couple weeks if we're lucky. Um, and yeah, usually you'll get, when you're a regular player that gets picked up in a city um, and you're playing all the shows, you'll get the one day of rehearsal. There's usually like a four or five hour rehearsal the day of the show. Then you'll do a sound check and then you'll do, you'll start the shows that night. So this, that first show day, those Tuesdays are really long. But when you're a sub and you're just singing in for a show for the week, you'll do the rehearsal and then you'll get to watch a show. And then you probably on that Tuesday and then you won't go in again until the weekend to play maybe play like one or two shows wow so that's a lot of work for one or two performances it's a lot of work and it's a, and it's a lot of pressure too i mean it's a huge challenge to because every time you walk in you're going to be on a different keyboard rig you don't really know what the sounds are going to be like they'll, they'll be listed on your labels sometimes on our keyboard books but um you know if something is mapped to a key like you're playing like a chromatic scale and maybe don't cry for me argentina is coming out um it's a little bit trickier to to play to practice on a keyboard book at home than it is for other instruments because what they're playing is what's actually being heard and a lot of times with us we're kind of filling in the rest of the orchestra so you kind of have to just get used to listening to the orchestration kind of matching what the articulations of are of each of the instruments that you're playing and kind of sometimes just holding your breath and hoping that you got it right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if you really have a minimal prep time and of course the the piano is a pretty featured instrument in just about every musical so it's really right up front and you have to be on it uh is it how you really probably don't get a lot of, of opportunity to memorize. Is it really just your sharp sight reading skills that, that get you through that? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of it is just, um, you know, it's just prep time. It's I've, I've spent a lot of time working with the music, looking at it, knowing how I need to get it situated, resituating it. If I need, if I have like, you know, I find I've got a page turn that I'm not going to make. Um, I know a lot of times, um, the shows will carry their own kind of like larger, really nicely printed uh, copies of music of the books, which they leave there. They have all the patch changes and everything labeled and some other stuff. But um, but because I, I practice so much on mine and I write myself notes, um, I usually just use my music. And that way I know that there's not going to be something that I've missed that's not going to catch my eye that I'll need to know when I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> right. Is there is there a different strategy when you're on the road doing a show and you are the lead? Um, no, because usually we've had if you're on the road, you've had and you started with the show. It's a little bit different because sometimes you'll have gotten to have rehearsal, you know, like cast rehearsals. But if you haven't had cast rehearsals, um, then usually we have at least, you know, a keyboard rehearsal for like a couple days which I did when we were with the Wizard of Oz. We had maybe like two days with just the keyboards to kind of figure out the programming, make sure the programming is correct and it matched uh, the charts that we got, which were kind of slightly altered and fixed from what we had been sent a couple weeks earlier. Um, that show in particular, I think I got hired for three weeks before it opened. I got the music about two weeks out. Uh, we got there for tech week. We had two days to kind of look through the keyboard stuff with the music supervisor and the music and the keyboard programmer. And then they brought the rest of the orchestra. And then we had, you know, just a couple of really, really long days of rehearsal during that tech week. I mean, we're probably 
eight or 10 hours, you know, that were there and, and then, you know, running the show and then opening for previews that weekend. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's a lot. And it's a lot. And, and that particular book was, I, I felt was a little bit more difficult than others because there were three keyboards on that tour and the, and the Andrew Lloyd Webber Wizard of Oz. And I mean, we were playing like everything. If there was something that could be played, it was everything. But <laughs> it was really well orchestrated, though, because I mean, we still had a 10 piece orchestra. We carried the conductor, um, who was a stand up conductor, three keyboards and uh, percussion. And we picked up everything else. So we picked up like strings and brass. And and that orchestration was great because with the, the keyboards, even though we had a ton of stuff, we were orchestrated in a way that we were actually mostly filler. And the other live instruments we had were kind of a bit like a chamber group, but everything they were playing was really important and kind of soloistic. Um, so it really, it really worked well. A lot of people couldn't believe that it didn't, it, there weren't like 25 people down in the pit for that one. Yeah. I think, uh, fr- from what I've looked at in his scores, it seems like he really writes very well for performance and not just the composition. Yeah. I mean, and also he's got a, a pretty brilliant orchestrator, whoever that may have been for that show. I, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. <laughs> well, I mean, you've worked on so many, you know. Now, now <laughs> interesting that you bring up Andrew Lloyd Webber, because my dream show, the one that's kind of my bucket list thing I've always wanted to do is to... Please don't say cats. Please it's don't not cats. cats. <laughs> Thank God. No. Uh, but it's it's always been Jesus Christ Superstar, because that was the, the first thing musically that I really started to pay attention attention to and kind of dissect when I was very young. And this was back in the days before we even had VCR. So the only time it played was four in the morning on Easter Sunday. And if you couldn't stay awake for it, too bad, because you couldn't go rent it anywhere. You couldn't tape it. You were just out of luck. Um, Is there a show that you would love to do that you haven't had the chance yet? Hmm. That's a good question. Because you've played on a lot of shows. I have played on a lot of shows. Um, Gee, you know, I don't know. I mean, An American in Paris was beautiful, and I actually played the keyboard. I can't remember if it was two or three. It's probably the third keyboard on that. Um, That show was just, the orchestration was just beautiful, and I hadn't got a chance to see it but uh, on the stage, but my husband did, and he said it was just a gorgeous show. And I mean, you know, watching the videos, like the sets and just the ballet dancing is just... Everything about it is so amazing. Um, it's very simple, but it's also very uh, t- uh, intense at the same time. It's a very well put together show. It's, it's kind of made for a compact space, but completely filled. Yeah, and I mean, and, the, and what's funny about ballet is the, the things that look the easiest are the things that are actually the hardest. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, she's turning really slowly. <laughs> probably because she can't, you know, turn faster. But in reality, that's probably one of the hardest things to do because you're not thinking about she's controlling every single muscle in her body to turn that slow right. and not waver and not fall down. So, um, yeah, I mean, I love that show. I love Wicked. I I wish that I was around, would have been around to have played um, Book of Mormon when it's come through. Mm. Um, I was trying to think if there's anything I've seen recently that I just really, really was like, man. I still haven't seen Book of Mormon, but I've heard nothing but great things about it. I've not heard anybody come back and say it was awful. Oh, it's so funny. I've only heard one person say that, but it was just some people that were at like a bar that we were at, they were just like, oh, it would have been fine without all of that, you know, like language. Oh. And I was thinking, I don't know how you went to that show and 
didn't know that that's what you were getting into. Right, because Trey Parker and Matt Stone write kids shows, and I mean they're they're pretty well known, you know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if you didn't know that going in, that's that's sort of your bad. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but people people are that way, and and I think a lot of people that don't necessarily have artistic skills will typically jump in and try and form some sort of opinion to to feel like they are a part of it, even if the opinion's complete nonsense. Yeah, I call those people artistically adjacent. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I like that. I, I have a friend who's an author, and, and somebody had uh, given her some bad feedback on one of her books, saying that they were uh, concerned about the author's characters because they didn't seem to eat and sleep enough. It, it's a book. Well, I mean, obviously, you... that person had not seen the show 24. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, that's, but I mean, that's the kind of feedback that you get from people sometimes, and it's typically people that really don't have any... Uh, artistic merit and they wish maybe that they did and so they have to try and become a part of it and and I get that on one level but on another level it's like if if what you're going to say is pointless why are you saying it well it's funny because I think one of the first times I ever got negative feedback for something that I wrote was um when we were first putting up Tiger Mother and I had just you know like YouTube was still new because it makes me sound really old but um you just <laughs> Not as old as some people think they are, mostly yeah. to children. But, um, yeah, I put up a video from a rehearsal we had at my house for um, the song Lazy White Children. And, and it was funny. Like, I thought it was funny. They tripped over my dog at the end of the video. And it's just, a, it's a, you know, it's a silly song. And everybody loved it. And um, one of my friends from high school had shared it on her page. And, you know, and all of her Asian friends were just like, oh, that's so funny. And there was one guy... <laughs> and I didn't know him. He was just, I think, a friend of hers, like, in Texas somewhere, um, took offense to it, which is, you know, I mean, that's fine. Um, and But then he kind of, like, kept going with it, like, on her page. Oh. <laughs> and it was, and, and then she finally made it into a separate chat because I think she was just a little bit mortified that that stuff was going on her page. But, mm-hmm. um, but basically he kind of was like, you know, like I'm offended by what you wrote in this song and, you know, and I'm not Asian, but my wife is, and she was offended and, you know, and, and basically kind of compared me to the Nazis. I don't, I'm wow. not really sure how he made the connection. Um, I probably have like an email with that still somewhere. Um, because I, I, I was too amused to be mad. And I was like, <laughs> who is this guy? And, you know, he was just like, basically how, you know, like, it's up to him to kind of like save integrity and, and, you know, and like, you know, he was just so offended and, you know, he didn't think it was funny and his wife didn't think it was funny. He was Asian, showed it to his wife's parents and they who were Asian and they didn't think it was funny. And I was like, oh, keep going with that. Show it to everyone yeah. so that you can tell them how not funny I am. And in the meantime, I just racked up like 75 views on this video. So thank you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, it's kind of like the PMRC when the, when the PMRC came out and Tipper Gore was the, the one in charge of that. She was, she was actually helping records reach gold and platinum level success for bands that would have never been heard of just because she put a warning label on it. And it really works against people that are fighting against something that they don't like. But I don't really get the concept of, if you have something constructive to say, maybe something like, you know, there, there are a lot of racial euphemisms. You may not want to watch this show if you're offended by that. I didn't like it for that reason. That's constructive. But to just bash something because you don't like it or you're offended by it, I don't get that mentality at all. Yeah, it's a bit weird. And especially him, too, because I think he was, I mean, I don't want to be a racist, but, you know, like, so white dude complaining about an Asian song, um, and he has an Asian wife with Asian parents. I'm like, 
so you're the one who was offended, but I feel like they probably thought it was either funny or true. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. They didn't want to tell you because you were a little bit worked up. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I mean, you know, it is true. Stereotypes come from something. There has to be some amount of consistency of behavior or action that causes a stereotype to become a thing. Then it's a matter of whether it's played up in a joking way or played up in an angry way or people are sensitive or not. Um, I've, I've known you pretty well for a few years now, and I've never thought there was anything that you said or did that I would question your integrity as a person. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and you embrace your culture. You know, you make light of the Asian stereotypes and, and that. Um, I've, I've seen I mean, you look at it. my driving. You've been in a car with me. <laughs> I have been in a car with you. And I lived, so I can't complain. It was a short distance, but that's beside the point. <laughs> so let's let's talk a, a little bit about Tiger Mother. What's uh, what was the the uh, inspiration behind you wanting to make that happen? You're going to totally laugh at this. So um, originally, it had started out as a cabaret idea because at the time, I think it was probably about maybe a year after I had started dating my now husband, who is Australian, he's from Adelaide, uh, South Australia, and he was a doctoral student at UNLV at the time. And the first year that we were dating, um, UNLV was doing some concerts down in the Adelaide Fringe Festival. And it was basically because I think one of the other guys who was in the department was also from Adelaide, so he sort of just used that as a way to pay off a free trip home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Alex was doing that, and so that was the first time I'd gone to Australia. And I was like, oh, great, they had this huge, I had no idea they had this huge festival. It was It's like the second largest fringe festival in the world. Um, and while we were down there, um, I happened to be in the central marketplace and where they just have posters plastered for everything, like all the shows everywhere. And I happened to turn and look at a wall in the food court and right smack in the middle is um, a flyer for a show, a one-woman show. Uh, um, and, th- and that woman is like, uh, the woman that I had ended up auditioning for to go out on the road with Troika Tours back in 2002, wow. I think. And I hadn't seen her since then. Like, I had driven, I remember the contractor had called me and said, Hey, what are you doing? Um, are you anywhere near Biloxi? And I was like, Well, I actually am driving from Florida or from Texas to Florida, but I can, I'm going to stop through Biloxi on my way over there. Do you want me to just stop by and, and play for her there? And he was like, yeah, that's great. And I drove, and I was at the Grand Casino Biloxi. She was doing Annie, Get Your Gun at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, we it was great. I got to see the show. We hung out. Um, and then the next day, I played for her, kind of hungover. Um, and it was great. And, I mean, and she and I have been friends uh, pretty much since then. So that's probably been about, what, 16, 16 years now at this point. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, but she was also, she left the road, she left touring for a little while and was doing a one woman show and on cruise ships and in the festivals. And she just happened to be also there doing a show in that festival. And I was like, this is great. And so I went and I saw her show and I was like, wow, she's amazing. I went and saw the UNLV show and I was like, this is pretty trash. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, but obviously, they'll let anything in this festival. So, you know, maybe. Maybe I should just do something in the festival, <laughs> and I can yeah. get a free trip to Australia. Sweet, <laughs> not free, but you know you can you can write it off. So it actually started off as as a way to just kind of write off a trip to Australia, and it started out as sort of a cabaret that I'd sort of 
um, was going to do and kind of formulate with uh, some girls that were in, uh, I had just done like an Asian heritage month thing, a heritage, uh, month thing with performance with, um, but it, it ended up kind of just changing directions. And um, my friend, Michael Manley, who is, was a horn player at Lion King here at the time, um, was interested. So he's like, why don't we, you know, like co-write it we can work together. And I was like, great. Um, he's, and, and so then it kind of developed into original songs instead of just, I was just thinking maybe to keep it as simple as possible to sort of do this kind of have a cabaret kind of thing and just kind of use songs that were already written for musical theater. But, um, but it turned out kind of morphing into its own story with its own original songs. And, um, and that was kind of something that I, I kind of hadn't really expected. And we did, we wrote it kind of throughout the fall. Uh, we did kind of a two day kind of pre like kind of workshop, um, kind of previews here in Las Vegas, um, at a little art gallery actually. And, um, but in somewhere in between there, you know, I had entered us in the Adelaide Fringe Festival just cause that's what I was always going to do. Um, and then we got into a theater, a small theater festival in New York in Times Square. Um, and we were just like, oh, okay, so now we've got a couple more places to do this. So we'll kind of keep writing it off. Um, I ended up finding, two actresses in Adelaide that were going to do the show and trying to figure out how to rehearse with them and also not be there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, was a bit of a challenge and the same thing with our New York cast, you know? And so we kind of did a lot of things kind of, um, over Skype or, you know, kind of conference call type. Luckily my two friends that were in New York, um, you know, were both, we could, could get together a little bit easier and, and like they knew each other and they were both, just phenomenal they were probably like the most amazing cast that i had out of the three casts that i did the show with but um yeah you know like when i did uh when we did it in australia for like a might for maybe like one like once a week for at least three or four weeks um i was doing skype rehearsals with those two girls down there in adelaide um you know and then it's kind of strange because like you know they have it they're sort of running through it everything's sort of on a delay when we have to kind of you know, say things. So it's a little bit more difficult. And then once I got there, uh, I did five straight days of rehearsals and then we put the show up for, I think, I can't remember if it was like five or six shows or something. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. And then, and then, and, and then right before we had left to go to Australia, we'd entered the lottery, uh, um, for the San Francisco fringe. Cause we thought, Oh, there's a lot of Asian people in San Francisco. Right. <laughs> So, um, so we entered that, and I mean, and that one's kind of crazy because a lot of people enter that because they have two categories, which is in town uh, people that are in town, local shows, and then ones that are not local. And there's a lottery, and I forget how many spots there are. There were maybe like twelve, and uh, we got like the last spot. Oh wow! <laughs> and so we're like, oh okay, so now we're going to San Francisco. That's amazing. And, um, and that ended, and I brought my cast from New York. They came out there because actually Satomi Hoffman, um, who is currently in the ensemble and a Madame Giri cover and Carlotta cover in, on Phantom on Broadway, New York, um, came down and did it. And, uh, my other, my other actress, he played the younger, or really the daughter, um, I had done Cats with when I had gone back very briefly on the road. <laughs> and, uh, and they came down and, um, and it was great. So tell me, like, was I didn't realize she'd grown up there, and my publicist got mad at me for not mentioning that. But oh, <laughs> but you know, I can only know so many things about everyone. Well, yeah, and, and you have to do the you know the the highlight words that are going to draw attention, right? New York is one of those big ones, and Vegas is one of those big ones. If and if you don't do that, yeah, people get upset. 
Yeah. So, so yeah. So we went there and we actually won like um, a Best of the Fringe Festival award there, which oh, cool. was kind of amazing. And it's, it's it was, and then it, it was just kind of such of a weird whirlwind of a year of, of something I just never really expected to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in between there, I ended up getting engaged while we were in Adelaide right after the Adelaide, we finished our run at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Oh, and wow. then the year after I got married. <laughs> yeah. Good timing, Alex. Um, <laughs> well, it worked out well. Uh, but, but you know, it, maybe that's part of the success of things, though, is when you're not trying to do something specifically to be successful or to build a name for yourself, you just, here's an idea I have, let's just try this and see where it goes. But you put the work and the quality into it, but you're not specifically trying to be become famous. You're just doing it because it's something that's fun to you. It's fun to me. I mean, I also do it with the goal of, um, you know, doing the best job on it. Like, you know, like I, anybody that knows me knows that, there's nothing that I do that I'm going to do at less than like 150% full force. (laughs) So, you know, like, like, yeah, I'm going to write a show, but I'm also going to, I mean, while I, if I, I, while I have like a tight budget, I'm still going to not let it look like I had a tight budget. I'm Mm going to make it look like a finished product because that's, I mean, and, and that's, what's kind of interesting about like doing so many things is I learned so much about, producing a show on all the aspects of the show because I did like the costuming um, and like the props and like the music and um, I did so many basically it was like the producer for that show it was and it was in the company manager and like our travel agent you know I, I had so many hats it was kind of crazy and it was and it was nothing that I'd really done before like I'd had a little bit of like kind of like marketing training because I worked for a year and a half at um, in the offices at Blue Man Group in this kind of I call it a made-up department it wasn't it was real but it was um it was a department called uh external affairs mm-hmm. and um, my boss who's one of my dear friends now Leanne Groff today um, oh yeah she's you awesome know, she, was, she was amazing I mean like and she just kind of just is like you know I just want even if you don't know the stuff I just want somebody who's smart let's work smarter not harder you know let's get stuff done and I mean, it's, it was so great to work with her that year. I mean, I learned a lot about marketing, a lot about PR, about like, you know, like the, all the charitable giving aspects and community. And, you know, at the same time, I was doing a lot of um, kind of like kind of chair, like benefit performances. So I was uh-huh. kind of learning some things from how those were being run as well. So that kind of helped um, form like how I wanted things to go and right. like what I wanted to do and, and what I was willing to spend money on and what I was not willing to spend money on. Yeah, and, and those decisions, especially the smaller your budget is, the more important those become. Uh, Leanne is awesome. We, uh, we've we been talking about a time to find for her to come on the show, but of course she's been traveling through the holidays. But she's currently working on opium and absence in the marketing department. Yes, she is. Uh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. She's another one like you that just constantly, okay, I have a free minute. What else can I fill that with? And Leanne is like one of those people, you're like, you swear she like puts cats to like – with the animal cats to shame because you're like they have nine lives but it's like Leanne's had like 20 yeah <laughs> and you're like how when did you do all this like <laughs> yeah the, the first time well she and only she and I have only gone to coffee once but just just listening to her even 10 minutes of of her telling her history I'm like how could you possibly have fit all that into your life up to this point I know it's really it's really amazing like you would never 
you're like, so you did all these things. I mean, and she's one of those people, she is just not afraid. She's fearless. You know, yeah. like she, when she was out of college, she just went to Paris and was like, you know, went knocking on the door at like, you know, 20th Century Fox in Paris, mm-hmm. you know, followed in a delivery. It's like one of those stories that you hear about and you're like, there's no way that's true. But for her, she's one of those people, it's totally true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've done a couple of potentially bold things in my life, but I, I don't think I would have ever even considered doing something like that. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> but here's here's an interesting thing about you. You said to me a couple of years ago that you really don't consider yourself a composer, but here you've written this musical and you've written a bunch of other things that are that are interesting. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel that way because I'm not making like my living as a composer, and I can think of a bunch of people who are actual composers, you know, like that that really deserve that title way more than I do. I, I can see that. <laughs> I, I can, but when you were when you were writing Tiger Mother, did, how did you decide that you were done? I mean, as, as as creatives, we tend to go, okay, but let me just tweak this. Okay, well, you know what? Now that I did that, let me do this other thing, and and we can just go on endlessly and never actually finish a project. Was there something that you just looked at it and said, okay, this is finished? Um, probably. Father Time determined that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but um. No, I mean, like, you just kind of, I mean, that show was a festival length, so it was probably about 50 to 55 minutes long, and, you know, I think we just tried to, like, we did, and we we sort of, like, you know, kind of did some revisions after we did that first kind of, those two first preview performances, and, um, you know, like, I feel like we sort of kind of ended the story in a way that kind of closed that frame of the story, but I mean, I feel like, but there were a lot of people that were that had seen it that were just like, yeah, you know, like, I'm, I really want to find out, like, more, like, what happens, like, after that, and, and you know, yeah. and that's where you get into that city territory, like, when you have something that's kind of shorter, like that, that does so well, it's like, all right, what do we do next that's not going to take away from the success, the success that we just built up, and it's, right. and, it, and it's, and it's a lot of thought, it's like, well, okay, like, do we do this, do we do this, how do we, you know, do we want to go back in time a little bit, and, and it was an idea that I'd sort of played around with, you know, kind of maybe the opening scene sort of maybe set in China, and kind of maybe doing a little, like a little snapshot of the mother when she was a child with her mother, um, and so I was trying to do a lot of research on it, and it was, you know, it's, it's so hard to find accurate information from China, just oh. because of what they control comes out, so really the only way you can kind of do that is by actually talking to people or interviewing them or, you know, trying to talk to people who have studied the culture over there, which actually is, is a lot trickier than, than you would think. Like even just doing regular internet research, you know, I emailed a couple of professors of Asian studies and, and I, I didn't have much success, like trying to get in touch with them. Wow. Is, is there a fear of maybe revealing some of the information because the, the news in general is so controlled that maybe people are a little afraid to be honest and speak out? Um, you know, I don't know. I just know that uh, some of the information that's out is is a little bit skewed because, you know, China wants everything to look a certain way. And, and ironically, like, that's sort of um, a theme that's in the show, you know, like the mother wants something to look a certain way. Um, but, 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 but that reality, under, the underlying reality is, you know, it's not as perfect or as easy or strong as it as it seems on the front and um and you know and and the reason i really wanted to do all that research was because i wanted it to be accurate and i wanted it to be real and i didn't want somebody who had lived you know through that time in china to watch it and say that would never happen you know it would be like 
it would be like a professional drummer watching Whiplash, you know, while that's yeah. entertaining to a lot of people who aren't drummers. Like, to a lot of drummers, they're like, um, his hand is bleeding in a place his stick wasn't even touching. Like, girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or who plays that fast with their drums being in the closet for six months? Right. I don't think so. Yeah, I I did enjoy the artistic liberties of that film. <laughs> I will say. Yeah. But I just think one of the things that makes a story so powerful is you can relate to it because it's, it's real to you, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and I think what connected to a lot of people with that show in particular is just, you know, it's, it, even though it was centered in the Asian culture, it's really about a relationship between mothers and daughters. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's easy to set it in the Asian culture because that's what I grew up in. Right. Um, I know my coworker or my co-writer, Michael. You know, like sometimes, some of the, sometimes when we were throwing around ideas, it was it was funny because it was hard. he grew up in such a different way than I had. You know, it was blowing his mind a little bit. You know, some of the things that you know when the director or like our um, actresses and we were you know sitting around kind of like discussing and fleshing things out. You know, it blow his mind like that can't be real. And I'm like, oh, we we're all like, oh yeah, that totally happens. Like, <laughs> right. So we're just like, yeah, that's just what it that's just what it is. And he's like, but that's so mean. I'm like, yeah, we know. Yeah, well, I I think that over here in in the States, we have very uh, rose-colored views of of other cultures, and I think that that not a lot of people tend to really dig deeply into that unless they have a specific reason to or unless it just happens to interest them. And so whatever we've learned, be it through movies or documentaries, probably more movies, becomes our perception of those cultures. And I don't think that they're usually accurate. No, and I think that especially like kind of nowadays, it's just like everything is so litigious and everybody's so afraid of, um, you know, like offending someone that we've sort of kind of gone the other side of the spectrum. You know, like we're now, I feel like people are afraid to let their kids fail. Yeah. Because that's the end. When really to me, it's not that if your kid fails once, like that's it, they're out. I mean, if you think about when kids play video games, it's like would they play the video game and then they die once and then like that's it, like they don't play it again. Right. No, like they kids are resilient. Like they'll if they don't beat it the first time, if they're smart, they'll try and they'll try something different until they get to the next level and then the next level until they beat the game. They that's how they that's how they bounce back. That's how they learn their skills. And it's the same way with life. I mean, like you can. It's like if you have one heartbreak, does that I mean, it can taint your view of relationships for a long time, but that doesn't mean that you're going to automatically stop doing it because you failed once, you know, like you get back out there and it's, you know, same with jobs and like recitals and, and performing, you know, like you might have, you know, you might have messed up at a recital or something, but, you know, the next time maybe you play it perfectly or maybe you win a competition but, right. you know, everything comes with some aspect of failure. And I think without the failure, you can't really, you don't really earn um, the winning. I couldn't agree more. And I think there's a natural thing in us that desires to succeed and to be able to develop the ability to succeed. Uh, I, I think that, like, there's a, a piece of software that's about to come out that I was asked to look at. And uh, I didn't know the company. I'd never heard of them before. But for some reason, they had found me and asked me my opinion. And basically what it is, is it's to help. It's as they market it, it's to help composers 
get through when they're working on a tight deadline and they have writer's block. And basically what it is, is you feed into the computer what you've written so far and you push a button and it fills in the next section for you up to whatever point you want it to do. And I thought, so this is basically like an easy button for lazy composers who don't want to work at overcoming challenges. They're just going to go, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what to do next. Oh, I know. I'll just hit this button. And <laughs> we're going to be, you know, flooded with a bunch of, of terrible ideas. And the other claim that they had, which was even more preposterous, was it checks every database and will give you something that's never been written before. Huh. I, I'm like, I don't care who developed that. That's not even possible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every combination of notes has been used. It's a matter of how they're used that makes it interesting, you know. But it's right. one of those things that's like a, another reason to not grow skills and to not work hard because you can find some way to circumvent it and be somewhat successful. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a, a natural desire in people to work hard. And like the video game example, I'm going to beat this level. And you might get frustrated yeah. and step back from it for a couple of days, but it's going to gnaw at you and you're going to want to come back and beat that game. Yeah. I mean, and you know, and I totally understand like a, as like a parent's first instinct is they want to protect their kids. Mm -hmm. you, know, you want to protect them from everything bad in the world, from failing. Um, at the same time, you know, like it's just, you know, it's like when you were a kid back in the eighties when, you know, it was okay to still spank children mm -hmm. <laughs> without getting arrested. Right. Um, you know, and you're and, and like you know, like your mom would say, I'm sorry, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. And it would you know, and, and that would still totally be true. But we got the point. <laughs> right, yeah. Of course that was back you in know? the days where we drank water from the hose and we lived. Yeah, I mean a little failing never really hurt anyone. And if and if you if you if you never fail, you'll never learn. I mean, there's not a single person in history that is just success one hundred percent of the time. I mean, even back to like the Renaissance era. I mean, you look at like Michelangelo and Da Vinci. I mean, like, I'm sure like their first drawings and sculptors were not their greatest masterpieces, nor was everything that they did. Right. You know, like there's some things that they, they do and then they look at it and they're like, hmm, this is, I, I would have done this differently. And then they do it differently and they develop that skills. Like I never had any training as a writer, really. I mean, I took, um, I took a, I think, you know, the regular music classes in college, like music theory, but I never had to take arranging. And I mean, it's what, and I, and looking back, I mean, like just based on the time that I went to college, I wish that there were some things I had taken that I had known that I needed the skills for. Like, I didn't know that I would probably need to know how to arrange for like a small ensemble right. or like, I probably should have taken some more vocal lessons and learned vocal or vocal technique and or taken more conducting classes, you know, or learned how, like even technology. Because I think back in the day, like I bought Finale 2000 when it was brand new, mm -hmm. which means it came out in at least 99. Um, and I still haven't figured out how to use it. So. <laughs> was that on floppy disk or CD? Oh, you know, I think a dinosaur delivered it to my <laughs> to my computer, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking. Uh, somebody had posted one of the, the main uh, DAW that I use is uh, Cakewalk, which is now owned by BandLab because Gibson uh, sold it off to them. But I somebody had posted one of the pictures of one of the original discs, and I thought, I had that disc. I remember that. I remember having a mini disc recorder and recording things on it and oh, not yeah. knowing how to play it back. <laughs> That's only slightly important, you know. Well, you know, yeah, I just, I never figured that out. But, um, 
But yeah, I mean, and it's funny because I even when I did eggnog this last time, um, you know, I asked our our key two player on um, Larev is a great arranger. I mean, like he does like tracks for like cruise ship gigs and like shows, and um, and he's just, I mean, he's such a meticulous arranger. All of his charts, they're like the best looking charts I've ever seen. So I really don't go to anybody else besides him. Robbie Wingfield is his name, if anybody's looking for an arranger. (laughs) But, um, but you know, it's funny because I was, when I was doing eggnog, I was like, all right, I need to at least try to save money. I need to at least try and do some of these other instrument charts myself. So I was starting off with like the, you know, trying to do like a bass part and guitar part and, and something for Alex to play on the drums. Cause originally it was just going to be rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I would, I brought my music in to work and Robbie would sit with me in the green room and I was like, all right, I'm going to figure out these chord changes. <laughs> and I was like, all right, F, A, C, D, F, <laughs> six, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm fine when it's just like, simple chords but sometimes you know like all those jazz guys they're like oh yeah you know you just like substitute the blah 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 and flat this this and then you you know try to i'm just like you might as well just be speaking chinese to me because i have no idea what any of those numbers just meant i like is it an f6 or is it not and and it's like because he was just he would just be laughing at me the whole time like well as i was painstakingly going through it but he was also laughing because he's like i don't get it he's like you don't really know like what any of these chords are but you can play them and he's like, and they, and they said, they're exactly what you want. You just don't know what they're called. Right. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I was like, I could learn, but then, you know, I don't know, somehow time escapes me and I don't have time to just sit down and really learn all the, what all the jazz chords are, what they're called. And there's so many combinations. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. Yeah. And then, and then you work on a show like Ka with Derek Jones, who's the bass player there. And he could recite that all to you in his sleep without even thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, some of those guys, and, and he's from Nashville, too, where they use, like, a number system, which right. is a whole other thing. Like, there's no keys. There's just, like, oh, we're going to start on four. And you're like, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> but everybody knows what it means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's that's really interesting. And now let's talk about the uh, the eggnog song. I had so much fun when we were working on the video. You... The th- one of the things that I love about you is that, like you said, you don't just do something. You put 150% into it. And everything that I've ever seen you do, whether it was a show we worked on together, whether it was something that you've just performed, or whether it's a video you're doing for whatever reason you're doing it, you really do go all out. And this eggnog song was, was no different. Uh, I was telling Alex the other day that even down to the to the singer and his motions in the video which kind of were a little bit organic because you were putting it together as you were shooting it but I, you could not have picked anybody better to play that role yeah i mean david valilla was amazing and he's just he's so funny and he i mean and he loved the song too which i think really helps like if you like the song and you enjoy it then you know i feel like people can feel that you like it right. and it makes it more fun and he's so easy to work with he because i you know like i called him he was just like all right he's like you know i'm gonna sing it through tell me if you like it i love direction just let me know what you think i want to try out this liza minnelli you know bop, bop, whatever seeker voice and i was like okay like it wasn't what i originally envisioned in my head mm-hmm. but he did and i was like that's hilarious 
We're keeping that. (laughs) (laughs) But those spontaneous moments sometimes in working with other artists, you really do get that. When you're sitting, when you do what I do and you're just composing at home and you don't have people to kind of interact with and all that responsibility falls on your shoulders, you don't get those spontaneous moments as often as you do working with, especially the, the professional level people that you get to work with. Well, I think it's also the people that you get together too. I mean, that group was just such a fun group of, of friends even, you know, just to be able to do that. And everybody's just like hanging out, having a good time. We're just like, yeah, like we have like sort of an agenda of what we want to shoot, but it's still a little bit loose. You guys can be drunk or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we cracked open a bottle of that Johnny White Walker oh, um, yeah. right beforehand, everybody had some of that. And, um, you know, it's just, but it's just one of those things where like, the great thing about being in entertainment is I, for me was like the, the camaraderie and just like the collaboration with other people, because I started out as a classical pianist and a classical competition pianist at that. Mm. And, um, and I hated practicing. Like I hated it more than I have ever hated anything in my entire life. And, you know, and it, which is when I teach lessons, why is I totally understand when kids are like, I don't want to practice. And I'm like, I get it. I totally get it, but you're still going to have to find some way to make it sound like you practice. Right, um, yeah. And it's funny because I, that's how I became so good at sight reading is when I was a kid, I hated practicing so much. I had to find some way to practice less, but make it sound like I had practiced. And mm. on the piano, it's a little bit harder because you have so many notes. Right. Um, when I was in band, I played French horn and my French horn teacher um, knew that I was doing that, but he was always so mad at me because I could still play the stuff he assigned me because I was like, this is easy. There's like, three valves and like one clef of notes um and so i was just like i'd look at it that morning and then i'd go in and be like okay this this is it and he's just be like uh like but you didn't practice that all week i'm like well i don't know does it not sound like i did wow so (laughs) but so you could but you could play the notes but how do you capture the emotion of the piece you know it's um that's something that just kind of developed over time And and one of the great things that um my old piano teacher taught me um was just that you have to breathe and and I didn't really fully make sense to me really until I started working with singers, but it's really all about the breath. Like you breathe kind of how you feel things. Like, you know, like if you're in a if you're in a, a really surreal situation, you breathe in a little slower but deeper. You know, if you're in a, a high, exciting situation, you breathe a little bit faster. You know, like everything everything that's going organically going on around you, you react to it um with your breathing. True. And so for me, like, you know, like, especially when I'm being, that's how I can, I'm often able to follow um, a lot of singers or instrumentalists is I try and just feel their breathing. I watch and I feel their breathing. And, and a lot of times that's, that's the, that's how we stay together. That's a, that's a really important point because in a lot of situations you're playing to a click track so that everybody's on time together, but there are times when you are not and you have to follow the live action. Uh, is is that really the secret to it? Is just to kind of lock on to their pulse and and go with them? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean it's not really a secret, really. I mean, it's just no, it's if, a secret. As musicians, you're meant to listen. <laughs> if you're playing in an ensemble, I feel like you're meant to listen to everyone and like really lock in with them. Anyways, right? <laughs> but yeah. that's just my philosophy. But but yeah, but I mean, even even when you're playing with a click track, I mean, um, just because you're playing with a click track doesn't mean that you can't be breathing and continuing to um, really swell and like you know like make like um, put all the nuances in the music. It just means that there is a metronome going on that you need to be kind of staying, you know, pretty close to. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's things that we have on click that are a little more. Um, 
have a little more, you know, push and pull to it, but also, you know, are, are flowy and, um, and they're with the metronome, but it doesn't mean that we can't have that recreate that same feeling, right. um, with that breathing while a metronome is going on. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So it's, it's there as more of a guide at times than it is a solid, okay, here's where everybody needs to be through this part. Right. You know, especially when a singer is like choosing to kind of back phrase a little bit or push and pull, it all has to come back and line up eventually with that click. But, you know, we, it, it's, it's the people that really know how to feel that the right way that it works for. Because, right. you know, otherwise, because sometimes when I work with singers, I'm like, all right, now you're just always behind. Like, you can take it, but you have to give it back somewhere. And most of the time, it's usually in an entrance. Like, once you hit an entrance, you kind of have a little bit of freedom after that to kind of push and pull it how you want, but you're going to have to come and line it up again. Because right. um, there's a difference between just plain being behind or ahead and actually using that timing for a purpose where it feels right, you know, and you can feel it, it really helps the phrase and motivates the phrase. That's true. And and sometimes, though, you have certain parts of a song that have programmed instruments that are going to play, and they're based on where you are in the song. So, like, maybe it's measure 48, uh, a string section is going to come on that's programmed. So you have to catch up to it by that point. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. Right. And if you haven't, then you probably didn't do your job right. Or right. count. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you had mentioned camaraderie, and I think that's one of the things that I, I love working on these projects with you because what one of the things that I experience for one I always meet cool new people. I mean you have just amazing friends in your in your world, but they come together for you. And I don't know if it's just because they are, they love you or because they believe in the project or they really enjoy the the doing something different, but every single thing we've done together, like people always come together and they work their ass off for you. It doesn't matter what you ask them to do, they just do it. And I love that. I mean, I I hope that they, it's because they like me. Well, I mean, I mean, they wouldn't if they didn't. But well, but I mean, I think when you're doing when you've done as many projects as I have, I think like you know, like I try to learn from each experience. But one thing that I I feel like is a commonality between every project and every tour and every show that I've ever done is is the people. And if your people are happy, if your people feel well taken care of, and they feel appreciated. Um, and they feel respected, they'll do anything. Yeah. They'll, do, they'll, they'll trust you to go where it is that you want to go, even if you don't know where that is. Um, and I always try and treat people um, as equals with respect. And, and, you know, and, and usually I try and surround myself with people on projects that I already trust anyways. Right. Um, and then, and, and when you already have, when you have a level of trust where people are like, all right, I know you're making this decision because you've put a lot of thought into it. I know we're going to be taken care of because I know you're going to take care of it. You know, like they know that they don't have to worry about that. They don't have doubts about what your motivations are, what your agenda is. Um, you know, because sometimes we're not lucky enough to work for people like that. You know, with corporations running shows these days, um, a lot of times it's the bottom line. You know, like we, I used to have a, I used to laugh um, because when I was out on tour and, you know, and, and they were starting to make budget cuts, you know, I was laughing. I'd say that their, that their slogan was, we're not happy till you're not happy. And we did it as cheaply as possible. <laughs> and, 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 and as funny as that is, that is sadly true. And it is sadly true. I mean, like, I mean, you can work, you can work your ass off at a show and 
they will they can just do nothing for you except expect more of it for less or less or no money right. you know what i mean yeah so it's it's weird because you back go back to that office space mentality where you're just like well maybe i should just work just hard enough not to get hassled yeah it, it's almost like just just enough to be known as wow that guy's always here but not enough to be seen to be thought of right. when they're coming to those kind of cuts yeah, you know, like not not a standout, not like oh, we need this person here, like or if we let go of this person, who's gonna do this? But you also don't want to do so much that like all of a sudden you've burdened your job with all these extra responsibilities that you don't get paid for, and that's right. always the danger of doing that. It's like well, well, you know, I'm certainly happy to like do everything I can to you know to make our show look amazing, you know, like at what point you have to decide where it's like okay. But at this point, I need to start maybe being credited or compensated. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I will have the link to uh, the eggnog song in uh, in the show notes so that people can watch and enjoy that. It is absolutely hilarious. It is a little on the naughty side. So if you're easily offended, I would say probably don't watch. But that probably means that more people will watch. <laughs> as we've discovered uh, before we wrap this up I do want to talk to you about a couple other things really quick um, one, now I had uh, Greg German on the show last month and I he love was, Greg he's, he, he's two the, best friends <laughs> he was the one that introduced me to you and Alex and I kind of I think that we would have connected at some point uh, you know obviously we, we work together on a couple shows but uh, Greg is such a great guy and one of the questions that I asked him that I want to get your opinion on is when how connected do you get to a show as far as you know maybe not necessarily so much the people you work with but maybe the show has an impact on you is it hard to end a show and go that's the end of it i'm never going to play this show with these people again or do you just go okay that gig's done i've already got my next one lined up so i gotta move into that one well i mean i think everyone's always sad when they've been on a show for a long time and they have to move on but i mean also because I come from the touring world, um, you know, those those tours were ending. So every year I was on a different tour, except when I got to Cats, because that never ends. <laughs> I actually had to leave. I actually left that show. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, but, I mean, every experience that I've had, I mean, I've worked at, I worked like Summerstock uh, up in the Berkshires and out in Daytona Beach and a couple summers out. I was lucky enough to work at the Muni in St. Louis, which is uh, the largest outdoor amphitheater that does shows. I think it sees something like 11,000. And it's like, wow, that theater is like, you work there, you're like a rock star in St. Louis. And it's amazing because I've never really experienced that anywhere. I mean, and they do like a show a week. And I mean, and you work your ass off for about 10 days in rehearsal. And then you do a tech from that's like midnight to 5am. And then you do the show like for the next week. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, and I've, they just don't have a budget out there. And I mean, they had like real horses pulling the Wells Fargo wagon. You know, they had, I think this like crazy old classic car that they just drove up once on the stage during Annie. They did that. Um, I mean, they had real fireworks when they did Meet Me in St. Louis to commemorate the 100th. I think it's like the 100th anniversary of the World's Fair, which is oh, uh, wow. why Forest Park had been built in the first place to was to host the World's Fair. Right. Um, I mean, it was just no it was such a crazy place to be because it like no expense was spared. Like you never heard, okay, well we don't have the budget to do that. Um, we don't have the budget to do this. And it was always like, all right, how can we make it bigger? And it's right. like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and you know, and you got, and, and it's like you worked as hard as you played. I mean, I got to work with a lot of really great um, music directors that were on Broadway and over the years, and it's, and I've made a lot of friends that I still keep in touch with from there. And I mean, and, and I kind of just because because being in theater is kind of a bit of a transient lifestyle because you do go from show to show to show that you know you kind of I guess I don't know if it's maybe we're just numb to the goodbyes but you know it's like we finish a show and you're like yeah you know this was a really great run um you know where's everybody going next or like it's it's fun when I read playbill.com like every day and just see the new cast and like who's gotten cast where what people are doing or that pops up on um you know my Facebook I mean social media is really kind of taken the sadness out of not seeing people because yeah. like you can kind of see what everyone's doing and you're just like oh I'm so happy for this person oh that person did something so silly or you find out you know like when people are, are struggling and and that's also nice too because you may not have known otherwise but it's you I feel like you're always going to be connected to like all of the people that you worked with because you spent so much time together right. you know and it doesn't matter how long ago it was I mean my first my very 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 first tour was a Christmas Carol way back in like 2001 we had like a five person pit or something of four or five people in our pit and it was a uh, out of the Omaha Playhouse in Nebraska and we did an east coast tour that somehow ended in Arkansas Fort Smith Arkansas <laughs> cuz that's east coast yeah <laughs> yeah and i mean and and you know it was I mean, it was a really, really lower tier tour. I mean, like my per diem was something like $25 a day in cash. And I was just like, I was like, this is amazing. I'm eating at a gas station in like <laughs> Peoria, Illinois. Right. You know, it's, yeah. or we're at this really cool little theater that was triple reinforced for when elephants came through on vaudeville shows. And, um, you know, and I still keep in touch with some of those people. Actually, one of those, one of our stage managers that was on that show um, was a stage manager here on a couple of the Cirque shows I found out and lives oh. in town and, you know, and it's and it's just funny. Um, our friend Jay Atwood actually, uh, as a kid, did that same production because they had a couple. They had the traveling ones and the resident one at that Omaha Playhouse, and he was in one of the resident ones, which was so interesting. It's just the whole world is connected. And, and David Valola, even, who sang the eggnog song, um, I found out actually when we were rehearsing maybe like a couple weeks ago that um, he was in the very first show I saw on Broadway, which was the revival of Annie Get Your Gun. And I saw it near the end of the run when Crystal Bernard was in it. And he was in that show. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Well, and I just found out the other day that you were probably playing piano when I saw Phantom of the Opera years before we would eventually meet. Probably. I was there subbing for pretty much the entire time except for from after two months that they started until yeah. they finished. So yeah, I, I know it was yeah. the last Christmas that it was there. Cause I think the, I, I don't remember what month the show stopped, but I know it was the last Christmas. It, it was uh, here in Vegas. Yeah. So it probably would have been a 2000 Christmas, 2011. Cause I know they closed beginning of September, 2012. Yeah. That's probably right then. Yeah. That, that time frame sounds about right. But like, I remember when we worked on the bright side, the musical together, which was a, a very, very touching show for me. Uh, that was also the first show that I worked here in Vegas. So that has a lot of significance, but the show itself, I mean, it was, a, it was a very small cast, but it was a very, for me, at least it was a very emotional show. And even as an audio engineer, uh, when I knew certain things were coming, like I would have a physical reaction to that. My eye, my eyes would well up a little bit when I knew certain things were going to happen every single show. And even though that show was only three weeks, even to the last show, I was like, 
we're never going to perform this together again. And this guy's going off to college and this guy's going off to another <laughs> thing. Like, like it really kind of had an impact on me. Does it, does it get easier over time? The more things you do to just kind of let that part go? I mean, maybe, I mean, I feel like you can probably look at it one of two ways. You can look at it as I'm sad this is ending or, you know, for me, a lot of it is just, wow, this is a great experience. I learned this is so I learned a lot from just doing this and I'm thankful that I I'm thankful for every chance I get to work with Jelana Sampson quite yeah. honestly like that woman and that woman just like shits lyrics and music like that you would not believe and she's just the nicest person to work with and those are the people that I love being around that all I'm happy to give my time for and um and and learn from and you know and I just it's so easy. And I also feel like it's so easy to stay connected these days with like social media, with technology right. that you know, we're never really alone unless we let ourselves really be alone. That's true. You know, so like, you, you know, we can, everyone is just pretty much like a touch of a, a text or a Facebook message away if we, if, if we want to be, you know, mm -hmm. maybe people might not write back as they forget, but, um, but it's there, it's there for you to use. It's there for you to see what they're doing. Like they're, like their successes or their failures or even just like their everyday stuff. Like, you know, even those people that we hate that are like post on Facebook, I went to the gym. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, but we can, we can know what people are doing. And for me, like, it's kind of all, it's, it's the teacher in me that, you know, it's a little bit like interesting to see where people are going to go. You know, like, how did this, how did this experience affect them by what they do next? Right. Well, yeah. And, and Jill Lana, you're right. She's amazing. And every time I see that she's performing somewhere, I just, I can't help but to smile because she's just another person like you, someone who is born to do what you're doing. And uh, it's a, it's a joy. But with Brightside, what was interesting is you were, I can't remember if you were coming back from Australia and you couldn't make the initial oh. rehearsals. No, I had gone home for my mother's birthday because we had, I had already planned a surprise trip home. Uh, to surprise her for a couple of days um, before I took Brightside um, and knew that I was going to be out for those three days of tech. Right. And <laughs> then you come back. Now, this was a very, very piano heavy show because a lot of the music was written in part with uh, Jelana and Martin Kay, who was performing as Jerry Lee Lewis. And that is the style of piano that he writes a lot of times. Uh, being that it was so heavy on the piano side, what was the challenge with coming in right before we started performances? Um, well, I was with them for throughout their rehearsals. Um, what was hard was having that sub come in and play those three days of tech. And it was because um, Martin Kay uh, does play like Jerry Lee Lewis, mm -hmm. but he doesn't uh, read music or write it down. So someone was having to transcribe all of that stuff. Really? And it was the same with the, yeah, and it was the same with the vocals. Actually, Jelana... Um, I think maybe like in that March, like for a week, like at the beginning of March that year, um, she and I sat down and we hashed out vocal charts for the whole thing because it was just going to be faster that way. Right. Um, but yeah, we so we at least had some vocal ch charts to go off of. And I think Martin St. Pierre was trying to orchestrate it out or, or like track it. But um, the thing is, is when you the problem with playing stuff in to something like Logic and exporting the MIDI is that. For anybody who's ever had to do arrangements that way, you'll know it looks like total ass. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's just a mess. Yeah, because things aren't things aren't quantized. Like 
things aren't like none of the rhythms are right none of the timing's going to be right and especially if you have like a rubato section or you have like a retard um it doesn't account for that in things like logic it's mm -hmm. just a huge mess and especially if it's not quantized correctly everything could just you could just have like a page of black notes with like nothing discernible on it and um and poor martin st pierre was trying to hash his way through that while i was also trying to hash my way through that so i could play it and trying to make my own charts as we went along so at least i had something for my sub to have and 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 in reality like we didn't really have all of the charts fully done until almost uh that week of tech wow I didn't know that about Martin because I, you know, I saw him perform a couple of times when he was uh, at the dueling piano bar at Harrah's, uh, while he because he was doing a million dollar quartet at the same time that Brightside was going on and he was doing the piano bar in the afternoons, and that man is is another one. Just he could take songs I can't stand like American Pie and he would turn them into something just amazing and brilliant because he would do his own arrangements on the fly. He would pull up right. the lyrics on his iPad and just play whatever he felt. And it always was enough of the song that you could recognize it, but it was also a lot of him. I mean, just a born live performer. And now he's doing yeah. cruise ships a lot, which it makes perfect sense because that's the kind of performer you would expect to see. Yeah, I mean, he's an amazing piano player. And it's just funny because like, when, when people like... I feel like the hardest part about composing is having to write it all down really mm -hmm. it's so easy to just sit down and play something but it's the painstakingness of having to write it all down and i mean that's really what takes the longest like it took me a long time to write out the piano parts even for um eggnog because i had to start it out you, know, you start out with like the basic stuff and then as you go through it you're like okay i'm gonna take the melody out now i've got to go through and see what i actually want to play and now i have to actually write that down right yeah yeah <laughs> you know i mean it, it takes it takes hours and for me i'm not super quick like i can i i'll write out i'll write out my charts in my notation program because i use overture because i'm not cool enough to have figured out sibelius yet but <laughs> it's a um, monster it, it's an absolute monster yeah but i mean but it, it, it is one of those things it just takes it takes a long time. I mean, like, Robbie's really quick at it, but, like, for me, like, I'm still, it's still one of those things that I'm kind of having, I'm just learning on my own, and it's and it's painstaking. But once you get through it, you're like, yeah, I did that. It still would have been faster if I hand wrote it, but <laughs> now it looks nice, and other people can, other people can read it. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was a little bit hard with Brightside, because my sub, um, I think, maybe might have changed his mind about how committed he wanted to be to that project from when I talked to him to when uh, we actually hit that tech period. And I don't think that he really, you know, listened. And it's funny because he was from the world of Cirque du Soleil where they have no charts. You right. know, they're basically having to listen to stuff and they can make their own charts. But, you know, you're listening to it and then you're kind of having to go from there and figuring out your own stuff. And so I thought, oh, good. So maybe this would be a good fit. And it just um, those three days, I just felt horrible being away, <laughs> you know, because I was just like, oh, this is not turning out how I had hoped it would turn out. Right. And, um, and I, and I, you know, I did get barked at by the stage manager on the day I came back because he thought that I, you know, wasn't going to be prepared for that opening show that I was going to play but lucky for me I was well you know what's interesting <laughs> is that the the stage manager was saying things like that he's like I don't know how she's going to do this I don't know how she's going to do this and everybody that was involved said it's Angela she's got this like you have 
a real strong level of trust with people in this town. And I mean, obviously you've earned it. There's People just didn't make that up. I mean, you've shown what you can do. But that's pretty cool that, that people seem really confident that you can walk in at the last minute and jump in and do what you need to do because you've shown that skill. Yeah, I mean, and just think of any of you think about how long it takes to even build that reputation. Because mm-hmm. you know that saying, you know, you can, you can make, create all the wonders of the world, but you fuck one horse. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the horse might bite not mind, but you know, everyone else will. So the the exactly. last uh, the last question I wanted to ask you is what is the status of Brunch to Broadway? Uh, you were doing a sideshow on Sundays that was actually a really cool idea and it was with Bob Torty from Brightside and I believe Alex was playing drums on it. Uh where is that at at this point? Um, you know, we're still in negotiations for next year. Um, right now, they're slated to do a um, New Year's Eve show, but it's just for, like, the Sunset Station VIPs. They haven't turned it into a ticketed event yet for some reason. Um, we did some. We did two shows as a test run there in at Sunset in July, which they also didn't make a ticketed event. So, it's, <laughs> so none of those shows have been open to the public. <laughs> kind of hard um, to judge what for- your audience is going to be if you don't let the audience in. Yeah, I mean, and we had great audiences. I mean, like, they were real interactive, mm-hmm. which was, oh, I mean, it was just so much fun for us. You know, just those, those old people were just like, hey, oh, oh. you're just like, oh, my God, she said that. <laughs> you know, while you're on stage, and it's just, we're just all up there laughing, having a great time. And, and yeah, so they're all getting ready to do um, New Year's Eve there. Alex and I can't be there because we have to be at La Rev and, and we can't get off of work. But, um, right. but we're hoping that... Um, with a good enough response from those two, those two um, dates that we have there, that they're, I think they're considering maybe giving us some possible dates in 2019. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed. That would be really cool. And you guys uh, started at Station Casinos at the Red Rock Casino. Uh, we did, yeah. Now, when when a celebrity is in the audience, do you usually know beforehand or uh, do you usually find out after the no. fact because Al Pacino made an appearance at one of your shows Al Pacino came and I think um, Stanley Tucci was there once too up at oh, Red Rock and really? we only found out after because our our audio guys were like well we didn't want to make you nervous so we just didn't tell you and we we're like but then we could have been looking at them when we were playing yeah <laughs> it, do you do you st- I mean you've done so many shows and so many tours You've performed, I, I don't I can't even imagine the count of how many shows you've performed. Do you still get nervous or do you just kind of get in your zone and, and do it? Um, it just depends. It's, it, you know, when I, sub, when I used to sub, um, I would always be a little bit nervous if I hadn't been in in a while mm-hmm. to play the, the first show. Um, and I, because I'm the assistant band leader at La Rev, I will call the show, which is kind of like the same as conducting, but we call it over the mic. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm supposed to rotate in, but I had like I did it on, I think Wednesday night this week, and I hadn't done it since before we left for our five day break uh, near the end of October. So it had been a couple months, and we changed a few things um, in in November, and I just hadn't called the show. So the the first one back's always a little bit a little bit nerve wracking because you just have to pay more attention. Really, is all. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like when I played my first show, um, subbing in at Waitress, like it was a new show and I hadn't played a new one in a while. And, and that's always a little bit nerve wracking because you want to do like I try to never go into a first rehearsal where I'm not like 95 percent there. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I think everyone just trusts me so much. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, certainly you've proven that. But what about with your own show? Because now you've been doing the Rev for quite a while, so it's it's an office thing to you. You know, you go in five days a week, you do your work, and you go home. But you're still performing in front of, what is that theater, like 2,500 seats? Uh, no, I think that one holds maybe a little under 1,600. Oh, okay. But still, that's a lot of people. That's, that's 3,200 people a night if it's sold out. Yeah, I mean, it's and you know what? It's funny because, like, as, as every day as we kind of get, each show is, is always different. There's never two shows that are ever going to be alike. And um, actually, when I was at the Nutcracker rehearsal uh, a few weeks ago at the Smith Center, um, our conductor, Jack Gaughan, said something that was just really, that just really resonated with me. And what he said was, you know, he's like, even though this is our job, he said, um, you know, it's really a privilege to be able to make music like we do every night. And also, and, and he said, and we should never um, lose sight of the fact that every show we do is somebody's first show and somebody's last show. Wow. That's powerful. And I thought about that. I was like, that is probably one of the most powerful parts about our job because it's, that's absolutely true. You know, this may be like, I know um, when I was on tour with the wizard of oz like um i'm at that age now where like a lot of my friends have had kids and they haven't and the wizard of oz that i the tour that i was on was the first show that their kids got to come see and that was really i mean it's really exciting because i think about the first show i saw which was um which was phantom of the opera i think it was maybe back in 1994 95 um and oddly enough ted keegan was playing the phantom in that on that tour and i saw him in that tour and then i ended up working with him later here at phantom in las vegas because oh. he was in the ensemble and he was a phantom understudy oh, nice. and he was there and um and when i went out on the tour in 2009 um i think one of the keyboard players had been on that tour all the way back then as well because those guys were on there for years some of them so it's you know it's just if you think about the impact that music has on everyone you know whether it's for good or for evil i mean music connects everything everybody wants a soundtrack to something so music is always going to be present right very very true that's that's very well said yeah and it is and it really is a privilege to be able to for people to know that every show we do is somebody's first and somebody's last show Mm-hmm. And I think too that every everybody who's really is an artist and really cares about what they do for the reason just that they love doing it loves to share that with people and loves to be able to give people uh, the the opportunity to enjoy it. And the shows here are on such a a, a spectacular, grandiose level. And I think Lareva is one of the biggest instances of that because visually it's a very grandiose show. The music is huge in that theater. Uh, the, the shows here are really an important thing and I, I love that people get to come and appreciate them and I love that there's talented professional people like you that deliver a great performance night after night and show after show that people can trust that when they pay $115 or $75 or 50 whatever they're going to see is going to be good. Yeah, I mean, I I think if you really love doing what you love doing, which I totally do, like I can't imagine really doing anything else you know like it really shows like you can tell when someone plays and they love what they're doing or if they just don't yeah. oh yeah <laughs> there's definitely a difference between a dial-in performance the yeah. difference is astounding it's like and people can totally tell like they can tell if you if you are into it if you love it. i mean i didn't love cats the musical mm-hmm. but i didn't play it like i didn't like cats right yeah <laughs> yeah 
No, that's awesome, and, and uh, I'm so glad that you're out there doing it. You're you're one of the people that if, if I'm working on something and I find out that you're working on it, even if you're just going to be there for a day, I'll just smile because you're, you're, you earn a lot of trust. People know that whatever the challenge is, we're going to find a way to overcome it, and you give everything your all, and I have nothing but the greatest of respect for you. I always have, and, and on top of that, you're just a fantastic and fun person. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time out from your ridiculous schedule. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me on. This is exciting. Yeah, thank you. And uh, like I said, we'll um, we'll get the, uh, I say we as if there's anyone else doing this. Uh, I will get the link up your to... Your six assistants? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, we'll get the link up to the video and, of course, your website and everything. And if you guys are uh, coming to Vegas, definitely check out Larev at the Wynn Hotel. Uh, it's a little bit more expensive of a ticket than some of the other shows, but the costs are higher because it's a water show. Uh, so obviously to maintain that, much like O, the Cirque du Soleil show at the Bellagio, it's a, it's a little more costly to maintain the show. So the cost of the ticket is a little higher, but I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. Thank you so much, Angela, for coming on. Oh, thanks so much, Scott. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Oh, how cool is she? That was just a blast talking to her. And uh, if you get into town, go see Larev. It's an absolutely phenomenal show. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. We will be back on Wednesday with another episode. And uh, I, I, I'm loving watching the uh, subscribers grow and the number of downloads grow. So uh, thanks for listening. Send me your New Year's resolutions to scott at scotthaskin.com. I would love to hear them. And uh, please take a moment and give the show a rating or uh, a thumbs up or uh, you know whatever you have available depending on which format you're listening to. And everyone have a safe and happy new year and we'll be looking forward to talking to you again next week. Bye.